Well, good morning, Bayview Glen Church. If you don't know me, my name is Lucas Cooper. I am the lead pastor here at Bayview Glen. And first and foremost, I just want to say thank you so much for your prayers over the last few weeks as our little family, Amy and Kaya and I have been away. Uh, many of you know that a couple weeks ago we experienced our second failed adoption in the last 12 months. And so we have really needed your prayers and every day we felt them and they have meant so much to us. And so thank you so much for praying for us as we kind of do some R&R &R and, and healing work with family and friends here in sunny Phoenix, Arizona. It's gotten to 50 since we've been here. So real hot and although we really have enjoyed being away we are very excited to be back in the great city of toronto this week and be back worshiping with our faith family at bayview glen church very soon i wanted to join you via video this morning because i wanted to introduce our guest speaker today because he's a friend of mine and a great guy his name is vj krishnan and when i first came to toronto I uh, attended a young adults worship gathering where VJ was the preacher. And because of who I am and because of what I do, I tend to be a little bit critical of preachers, not always in a bad way, but a lot of times I listen to preaching so I can get better at preaching. But from the minute VJ started, I listened to preaching and his uh, message and his heart for God convicted me and encouraged me and comforted me. I introduced myself to VJ after that gathering and we became fast friends and he's become a friend and a leader even to me. VJ, you know what I'm talking about over the past four years in Toronto. He's a huge influencer for the kingdom in, in our city and, and I really love VJ and I'm so glad that he's in our pulpit again today. Most importantly, I wanted to share with you what's going on at Upper Room Community Church, which is the church that VJ pastors. Now, VJ was part of the original plant team 11 years ago for Upper Room Community. He was not the pastor at the time and then became the pastor a number of years ago and they quickly outgrew their temporary space in a movie theater. Uh, they're in Vaughan. Vaughan is one of the fastest growing and least churched per capita cities in all of Canada. They are in desperate need of a church and Upper Room Community Church is making a huge impact in that city. They have an opportunity to move into a more permanent home, in fact, a permanent home in the bottom floor of a brand new condo high-rise. The Word of God says, go into all the nations, or all the nations can take the elevator down to your church, and that's what Upper Room has the opportunity to do. They've already raised $1.5 million towards that project, and the and a local developer has partnered with them and offered a substantial amount of money toward that new facility but they do need to raise another 1.5 million dollars so what upper room needs is some financial partners and some prayer partners that will join with them in the kingdom work that they're doing in the city of Toronto and, and here's the kind of church Bayview Glen is going to be we are not going to be a church that competes with other churches we're going to be a church that partners with other churches so if you're looking for a church that is gospel-centered spirit-empowered mission-focused join with upper room community church and, and 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 contribute financially and pray for them as they establish their new home we are so excited uh, about what god is doing at upper room community uh, kevin chan is going to talk to you a little bit more about the logistics to conclude our service today but without further delay would you join me in a big Bayview glen church welcome for my friend vj krishnan morning. Man, Lucas has never said anything that nice to me before in my life, so I'm just going to keep that video and just play it uh, regularly. Um, we've, we've preached in each other's churches before, and, and we usually burned each other before uh, at the beginning of the service, so I did that here, 
And then he came and preached at my church. And, um, and he was preaching on the Good Samaritan. And it was during our family services, so all the kids were in. And so he decided that we would act out the Good Samaritan. And, and of course, who was the one being beaten up and lying on the pop-laden uh, theater floor at the front of the church for three and a half minutes was me. So, so I'm done burning him. I think I'm, I'm good. <laughs> um, but it's, it's so good to be here with you. Pleasure to be a part of your church and just been able to track with Lucas over the last few years in your journey um, and being a part of the a pastor in the Alliance Church and knowing uh, Baby Glenn, you have sent out many people all over this city and all over the country who have been a blessing to me, people who have become spiritual mentors. So I'm just grateful for the, for the work of God that continues on uh, in this place. <clears throat> When I, um, I've been married for 15 years, just sort of past my 15th anniversary this year, and uh, when, when I first uh, got married, my wife, um, after, after we got married, she moved in the apartment we were with, uh, we were, I was in, and, and I noticed something funny, like I've never spent money on a candle in my life, but suddenly there were candles everywhere. Like I was convinced they were mating like when we were gone, because I just thought, how, I don't see you buying these, I've never bought one, where are these candles coming from? And it's, I don't know, any of you have that experience before? Well now, I have three boys, three kids, and, and the same thing has happened with versions of Monopoly. Like, I don't know, I, there's like 70 of them. I've never bought one, but they appear in our house. It's a marketing wonderland, you know? I get, and appreciate Monopoly. They just keep making new versions. Now, if you never played the game before, the way it works is, uh, it's pretty simple, regardless of the version you're playing. You go round and around the board, trying to make as much money as you can. You're buying properties or brands or something like that to accumulate wealth, and then you wait for that moment when one of your family members or close friends lands on your property, and you delightfully you know, squeal and exact all of the punishment in dollars from them, hopefully eventually to put them out of the game. Now, that's the purpose of the game. You go round and round, accumulating as much as you can, and, and the goal is to finish with as much as you can and win. Now, there's this thing in the corner called jail, which nobody wants to go to. Um, and, and you might land there, but that's not the purpose of the game. The purpose of the game is just to keep going. And, uh, and, but you can get this get-out-of-jail-free card. So if you land there, you play it, and off you go again. And I was thinking, it's how a lot of people think about life and about God. That the purpose of life is to race around, around and around, collecting and accumulating as much as whatever it is that you say is sort of what, what the goal is. And, and if there is a God, he's sort of over there in the corner, he's probably the warden of a jail, and you don't want to go there, but that's not really have much to do with the game. You just want to stay out of there. And of course, you can get a, you know, get out of jail free card from Jesus, and, and then you don't have to go there. Now, there's some people who, who don't believe that there's God or anything in there, and then there's some, maybe who, some of us who are more sophisticated in our theology, believe that God's not only the warden of the jail, but he's determining which chance cards come to the top, so that at the right time, you can sort of draw this and that, and that's how a lot of people think about God and faith, that he's over there, but really doesn't have much to do with day in, day out life, and I'm actually not talking about people outside the church. I'm talking about many of us who have been raised in the church, that this is what we were sort of taught life and faith was about. I remember reading a book a little while ago by a, a, a parenting book by a man named Tim Kimmel. And he said, as parents, he said, basically what we are told and what we are sort of the, the culture that we're in sort of influences us to push our kids in the direction of is these four things. Wealth, power, fame, and beauty. 
He said, this is, this is what the purpose of life is we are being told our, our kids, and this is what we are raising our children for. Now, even as I say that out loud, something in us goes, ooh, that doesn't sound like that. I wouldn't say that out loud. Like, that's not what I'm raising my kids for. But why are we putting our kids in school from the time they're like three weeks old? Like, why do we have all these schools that they're, they're, they're learning faster, whatever it is, the abacus and whatever they're using to, like, why? So they can get a good education. Why? So they can get a good job. What's a good job? One that pays well. Why? So you can have financial stability and not have to worry about the needs you have now and have enough for the future. By any measure I've heard of, that's called wealth. And we have an entire culture bent on raising our kids for wealth. Power. We say, well, no, that's, we're not raising our kids for power. But we all know that it's better to be the CEO than to work in the mailroom. Why is that? Because there's more power if you're the CEO. You get to make more decisions. People look at you differently. You get a different office. You get a different title. You have more influence. And we all know we want to move up that ladder. We don't want to move down it. If you move down it, something bad has happened to you. You want to move up. Why? You want increasing levels of power, not decreasing levels of power. You want increasing levels of significance, not decreasing levels of significance. So the purpose of life is actually to accumulate power. What about fame? That sounds really bad. No, nobody's interested in fame. I just want to be recognized for the things I've done. Recognition is fame. And when we get passed over for a promotion or something that we know we should have gotten because we actually worked better and did better than the person beside us, we're upset because we did not get the recognition we deserved. And when our kid gets passed over on the team or they're on the team but they're riding the bench all the time, we're upset why they're not getting recognized, they're not getting their shot, they're not getting their opportunity to shine. My kid's a way better singer than that other kid. Why are they stuck at the back of that assembly? There's something in us that is upset when we feel like what we are due and what we are owe and the recognition we deserve is not coming our way because inside we are bent on fame. And then beauty. I mean, the orthodontic business is like a... It's blowing up, man. Like, there were way more orthodontists than when I was a kid. There's one on every street corner. Why? Aesthetics, how you look, straight teeth, certain look, certain hair, certain clothes. We're dressing our kids up in like these little dolls from the time they're young. We, like, there's certain, my kids, right, they want to do their hair, but I'm like, guys, you can't use my hair product. Like, that's more expensive. You know, I, use, I get mine from eBay. I have the ID number if you want it later. I don't just wake up like this, okay? Right? We, we are so, we, how much time we spend in the mirror, how much time we spend on ourselves. And I've never seen a, an ugly picture of somebody on Facebook, right? Which, which is good, because that just means none of us are ugly, right? We just need the right light, right setting, right background. And of course, you get a picture of the wedding you were at, right, last, and you look at it. What do you look at? Who do you look at first in the picture? You. And if you look great, you don't care if everyone else is like kind of half asleep, red eye, mouths open, looking. It's the guys, let's frame this. Like, this is amazing. If you don't look good, you don't want it. Like, let's just be honest with ourselves. And if you think about this, this is actually scary. And I, I did this. I thought about this for a moment. How much of your week and life is spent on chasing these things in some shape or form? How much of your thought life is occupied? with financial security and how other people see you and where you are in the ladder of life and what kind of recognition you're getting and what you look like or don't look like today. 
Isn't this describes so much of the life that we live around and around, trying to accumulate one or all of these things. What's interesting is that they're saying to us that the millennial generation, how many of you are millennials? I think it's like 30, age 35 and down. How many? How many? It's okay to admit. You know what they're saying about that generation? Oh, they have no sense of purpose in life. Well, they're not motivated. Oh, they, they, don't want, they, don't have, they don't set goals. They don't seem to be aggressive. You know why? Because they look at the generation before them and they say, foul. We're calling foul on that. That is not a purpose worth living for. They look at the generations before them that were built on wealth, power, fame, and beauty, and they said, you know what you had to sacrifice to get that? Me. And I'm not doing that again. They're calling foul, bogus. That's an empty way to live. And yet, that generation is living with epidemic levels of anxiety, depression, and suicide. Why? Because they're like, well, if we're not going to live for that, what are we going to live for? If that wasn't worth giving your life for, in God's name, what is? And so this issue of purpose and what it is that we are living life for is a question that every one of us needs an answer to. And if we say that Jesus is good news, some of you have like good news Bibles, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we say that Jesus is good news, Jesus has to address this issue of purpose for us because if we don't have a purpose for living, then what's worth living for? Maybe you came in this morning and one or all of these things you feel like are slipping through your fingers right now. Maybe you've had a health scare. Maybe you looked in the mirror this morning, a little more gray, a little more wrinkles. You're feeling the effects of the beauty you once had and it's slipping through your fingers. Maybe financially you just have not been able to carve out the stability that you have been looking for and you thought that at this point in life you would have more or you'd be more stable or you wouldn't have to be sort of thinking or living paycheck to paycheck. Maybe this morning you're coming in with a bit of a burden because you feel like you have been passed over. Maybe you've been demoted. Maybe you've lost a job recently. I don't know why all of that may be happening in your lives, but I do know this, that maybe it's an opportunity, a window, where God has an opportunity to come into your life in a deeper way and expose the fact that these things, friends, are not worth giving our lives for. This is not what life is about. And sometimes we are more aware and willing to receive that truth in the moment when these things have disappointed us. And so maybe today is one of those days. And I want to spend some time just talking about how Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ, actually gives us a purpose for life. Now, if you've grown up in the church or you've spent some time reading your Bible, hung around with Christians or whatever, you maybe have heard this sort of idea that, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, Jesus saves us, um, you know, he, that he saves us, that, God, that in Jesus we have salvation. And we sing about that a lot. Of course we do. But the words um, salvation are used about 40 or so times in the gospels, the four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The word sin is used about 60 times. But you know what word is used over 120 times in association with this idea of good news, mostly by Jesus? It's the word kingdom. The kingdom. It's actually a word we're not very familiar with. 
says actually in one of the Gospels of Jesus, Matthew 4, 17. From that time on, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven. You'll see kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and they're interchangeably used by Jesus. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So Matthew chapter 4, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, as he sort of appears on the scene, he begins preaching the good news of the kingdom. And he says, it's near. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is near. If you go on and read past the Gospels into the book of Acts, which is the early history of, of our story, the church, you will find the apostles of Jesus Christ teaching about Jesus and about the kingdom. In one place it says the Apostle Paul stayed there for three months in this place that they had never heard of Jesus before, arguing persuasively about the kingdom. Another place it says he stayed two years talking to them about Jesus and about the kingdom. And so if we were to step back and look at the Gospels and look at the book of Acts, Jesus and the early church, the founders of the church, they talked more about the kingdom than anything else. And the reality is we have no idea what that means. If someone were to ask you, well, what is the kingdom of heaven? We would probably say, well, it's, it's heaven. Like it's this future reality, this someday, one day, streets of gold and golf courses, which if there are golf courses, like that sounds more like the other place than heaven to me. That's just me personally. Golf causes me to sin, so I don't play it. Um, but, but that's sort of the best thing we could come up with is that's, that's what the kingdom of heaven is about. And yet Jesus said something entirely different. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Now, the word repent, it sounds like sort of old school, like turn away from your sin. And of course, the word repentance simply means stop and turn around. Change your path and change your mind. You're going this way, you're thinking this way, you're living this way, and Jesus says stop and turn around because the kingdom of heaven is here. What did he mean? What was Jesus talking about when he talked about the kingdom. Now, they, they would have been very excited to hear that word. This language that we don't use very often, but in Jesus' day, when he began to talk about kingdom, that would have been very exciting to his people, his listeners, because the Jewish people were, had gone from being under the rule of Babylon to under the rule of Persia, then under the rule of Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, and then finally Rome, the most powerful and brutal empire the world's ever known. And Israel was sort of ruled by the Romans. And they were believing that one day God was going to send them someone who would lead their kingdom again. Because they used to be a kingdom. And David was their, the kingdom of Israel was at its zenith when David was king. And those were the good old days. When they had political independence and economic flourishing. And when they were militarily strong and nobody dared to threaten them. And so for them, that was like what, what heaven was like. And they wanted to get back there. And they believed that God was going to send them someone who was going to overthrow Rome and be the king of Israel again. And so when Jesus, who is doing things that they have not seen done in hundreds and hundreds of years, the kind of powerful miracles, when he was teaching with authority, when he was like um, including and, and having a, a group of people and crowds growing increasingly following him, they're thinking, this is it. 
And he starts talking about the kingdom. Well, that would have been loaded language for them. They would have been, yes, yes, yes. When is he going to bring his army together? When is he going to overthrow Rome? And we will become an independent nation state again. The problem was Jesus and the kingdom seemed to have no interest in what they were interested in. He was constantly trying to show them the kingdom that you think is not the one I'm talking about. The kingdom of God is something different. The values of the kingdom of God are different than the values that you have in your life. And so right after he begins to talk about the kingdom, he launches into this little mini sermon called the Sermon on the Mount that we'll find from chapters 5 to chapter 7 in Matthew. And it's Jesus beginning to explain to them what is the kingdom of God about. And I want you to stay with me this morning as we read it. Maybe it's familiar to you. Maybe you've heard it before. We're just reading the beginning part, the Beatitudes. Maybe you've heard it before. Maybe you've never heard it before. But in this is where we find the purpose that you and I have been created for, the reason that we were meant to live. And so Jesus goes on to explain this kingdom that is different than the one that they had ever heard before. He says, blessed are, before we go, blessed are, in other words, blessing. These are the people who are, who are um, fortunate and blessed and who are going to thrive in my kingdom. These are the people who are great. And then he goes on to list all of these odd things, things that are not great at all. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There it is again. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You are the light of the world. See, Jesus begins this discussion on the kingdom of heaven. He says, repent, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is here. And then he goes on to explain, well, what is life like in the kingdom? Here is a new way to live, Jesus was saying to them. And interestingly, he goes on and lists a whole bunch of people that were actually the people around him would have said, well, they're, they're in a really bad state. If you're poor, if you're mourning, if someone has mistreated you. And he says, actually, they're the ones in my kingdom who are blessed. Right away, they would have said, wait, wait, this is something of a different kind. This is not actually what we thought about. This is not what the kingdom sounds like. Jesus was inviting them into a new purpose, a new way to be human. Whenever you hear the idea of the kingdom of God, think this, a new way to be human, a new way to live. Now, where did this idea of kingdom come from? It was actually not new from Jesus, and it wasn't just actually about what the children of Israel thought about having a new kingdom that would free them from the grip of Rome. See, kings in those days, when they would conquer new places, because every king wanted his territory to expand, and so when a king would conquer a new country or a new land, he couldn't be in all those places at once, and so he would set up images of himself in each of the places of the lands that he owned. So the king would live, and he would have his palace in one place, but if he owned this country and that country and that country, each of those places and cities and countries would have images 
of himself in that place so that people would know, ah, this place belongs to that king. That's who rules this place. What's so interesting, at the very beginning of Scripture, the very beginning of our story, in the book of Genesis, it says the human beings, you and I, men and women, were created in the image of God. In the image of God. That human beings were given a purpose at the beginning of life that they would represent God wherever they went. That there would be something about them. They weren't God, but they were images of God that every time somebody looked at them and saw them, they would think and know about God. And so we see at the beginning of Scripture this this purpose that human beings have sent out into the world to live, to relate to each other, to work, to rule, right? And to represent the rule of God to them. The kingdom of God, the word kingdom actually is the, the word, is, the Greek word is basileia, which is where we get the idea of basilica. But the kingdom of God is not actually a place. We think building, kingdom, throne, game of thrones, you know, Lord of the Rings stuff comes to mind. We think kingdom. That's not what kingdom meant. The word kingdom, the kingdom of God is the reign of God. The reign or the rule of God. It's not a place, it's a space. The kingdom of God is the arena or the realm in which the ways of God are king. The rules and the values of God are the way of the kingdom of God. You see, God from the beginning set up that human beings would have a purpose in life to be people in this kingdom. And you know what human beings did from the very beginning? We want our own kingdom. We don't want you to rule us. And so there's this funny little story in the book of Genesis. Again, like like early on, the book of Genesis really kind of sets the the tracks for what the story is like. And in Genesis 11, there's a story of these people who say, you know what, let's build a tower, kingdom, and it'll make a name for ourselves. We will make a name for ourselves. Read the story and we're like, why was God, and God kind of, gives them languages and confuses them so they can't communicate with one another, and the tower building stops. You look at it and think, well, why was God so, why did God hate that tower? Like, what was wrong with them building a tower? It was their effort to say, we do not want the kingdom of God and the ways of God. We do not want God to rule over us. We will be a name and a kingdom for ourselves. And so what you see at the beginning of Scripture is the story, and one of the ways to understand the whole story of Scripture is these two kingdoms running beside each other. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Babel, which becomes the kingdom of Babylon. You'll read oftentimes the word Babylon coming up all the way through Scripture. Why? Babylon was this alternate reality, this alternate kingdom to the kingdom of God that was always competing with the kingdom of God. God said, I want you to represent me in the world, and human beings said, no, we don't want to represent you. We will represent ourselves, and we will pursue what? The values of the kingdom of Babylon, which are what? Wealth, power, fame, beauty. Wealth, power, fame, beauty, these are the values of the kingdom of Babylon. And eventually you see God says, you love Babylon so much, why don't you just go there? This is the story of Scripture. It's the story, not just the Scripture, but of your life and my life. That running alongside the kingdom of God and the ways of God and the values of God is this other kingdom where the people in it pursue wealth, power, fame, and beauty, and we are constantly in our lives being tempted to live in the kingdom of Babylon instead of the kingdom of God. And so what does God do? Wipe humanity off the face of the earth? No, he doesn't. He sends his son Jesus, who is what? The perfect image 
bearer. He sends us a person, not a list of rules, right? This is so interesting. The Sermon on the Mount, you can almost see a parallel between the book of Deuteronomy, which was the first law that God gave when he rescued them, and and they're on a mountain, and the law comes. It's the Ten Commandments. Jesus actually now in here is giving a second law. That's right. That's why he's always saying, you've heard it said, I said, you've heard it said, I said, you've heard it said, I said. He's giving them a new way to live. Jesus comes as the perfect image bearer so that we could see what the kingdom of God looks like with skin on. So that we could see the new way to be human that God is inviting us to live and follow. And you know what Jesus did every time he went around? He didn't just teach. What did he say? Follow me, follow me, follow me. See, friends, this is the purpose that you and I have in life. It is to image Christ to the world around you. This is your purpose in life. Whatever you do for a living, whatever you look like, whatever talents you may have, whatever your story is, whatever level of education you have or don't have or pursuing, all of that comes under this purpose is that you and I are meant to image, to be representatives of Jesus to the world around us so that the world sees us, they think, oh, Jesus. See, I'm convinced that we live in a world and in a country, it's being called a post-Christian nation, but because we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who have walked away from a Jesus they never knew because what they saw in the church or what they saw in the Christian was not Christ. Because our story, if we're willing to admit it, is that we struggle and we fail to image Christ to the world around us. We are racing around just like everybody else, accumulating wealth, power, fame, and beauty. And Jesus says, actually, I've created you for a whole different purpose. Follow me. Now we read the Sermon on the Mount in a totally different light. These Beatitudes now, Jesus says, okay, this is now the charter or the, 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 the path of what it looks like to follow me. This is what the values, if you're in the kingdom, if you're with me, if you're following me, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes gives us, here's what it means to be human. Here's what it means to follow me. And I want you to think about this. Let's go through them again. This is what it looks like. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? (laughs) It means to know and admit you need help. To be vulnerable. Even Jesus himself placed himself at the mercy of whoever would take him in. He says, I have no home. I have no place. Whoever invites me in, I'll stay. The scriptures say God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The humble person, the poor in spirit says, I do not have it together. Isn't this so funny? Because isn't this the, the, the first thing that churches fail to do? Because what we give off is, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, maybe I was a mess back then, but Jesus saved me, and now I'm fine. <laughs> You're not fine. I'm not fine. I'm not okay. And that lie is actually what keeps so many people about actually coming close to the body of Christ, is because they think, you know what, I've heard people say this to me. Well, I can't come to church. I'm kind of a mess. Like, no, no, that's why you come to church. We're all the people who are just willing to admit we're a mess. The poor in spirit. Jesus says, the first move of someone who will follow me will admit that you need me. 
to be poor in spirit. To be meek. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is those who choose to use power in the service of others. Not to power up, but to power down. Meekness is those who say, I will use whatever power I have in the service of others. I will power down. I will not seek to be right. I will not seek to win every argument. I will not seek to use whatever I have in my service. I will power down and I will get under those who are below me to lift them up. Jesus said that's what the value of the kingdom of God. How do we know this? Is what Jesus was doing all the time, using his power in the service of others, his meekness. To be righteous is to do what's right, though it may cost me. To do what I know I should do, though it may cost me reputation, though it may cost me time, though it may cost me energy and money, though it may cost me physical energy, it will cost me the things I hold dearest. To be righteous is to do what's right, though it may cost me. To be merciful, to give grace when others have scorned you or spurned you or hurt you for the umpteenth time when they said they wouldn't do it again. To be merciful is to not hold grudges, to not take on family issues, family grudges, things that have run deep in your family for years and years. <laughs> people, bosses, people you're in interrelationship with, to show mercy in the face of hurt. Jesus says, this is what it means to follow me. This is the new way to be human. To be pure in heart, this is to keep a clear conscience. When the Apostle Paul later on in the, in the epistle says that love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps short accounts. This is the idea to say, I will not hold things against others. I will, I will repent and confess regularly. That regular cleaning out of my life, regular confession, regularly making things right with those that I have wronged in my work, in my family, in my church. Jesus says this is the new way to live, to be pure in heart. To be peacemakers. This is not about being merciful to those who have hurt you. This is about seeing others who are hurting each other and saying, you know what? I'm not going to live and let live. That's what our culture says. Live and let live. Don't get involved in other people's stuff. Just keep to yourself. Don't get involved in that. You're judging other people. And Jesus says, no. Actually, peacemakers are saying, I'm not peacekeeping. I'm saying peace, peace when there's no peace. I'm peacemaking. I'm going into the difficult conversations, the difficult situations at home at work, in my neighborhood, and saying, what does it mean to be human, Jesus says, is to seek peace, to make peace, to be an agent, a third party who helps others reconcile. And then he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for being with me. To be in the kingdom of God is to boldly speak about Jesus, even though it might cost me something. To identify myself with the one that I follow. You know the beautiful thing about Jesus? Is he taught them all this stuff, but then he went and lived it. Because this is too hard to just say, okay, I'll try to do that. Jesus says, I will show you what a beautiful life looks like. And isn't that what you and I are always trying to get when we're racing around and around looking for wealth, fame, power, beauty? It's a beautiful life. And Jesus says, watch my life. This isn't just something I'm going to tell you to do. I will live it. The cross 
is almost at once the symbol of all of those things. To be poor in spirit, to be meek, to using his power in the service of others, to show mercy, to make peace. Jesus says, watch my life. This is what I've done. When Jesus invites you and I to follow him, which, by the way, is, is a way better to describe, way better way to describe what faith means than anything else, because I'm a Christian. I don't even use that language anymore, because when I say that to, to a lot of other people, it means a lot of junk that I don't want to associate with. And actually, it's not a word, really, that the New Testament used. Someone said once they were doing a seminar and they said, how many of you are Christians? And, you know, they said 90% of the hands went up in the room. And then they said, how many of you are following Jesus? And half the room went up. Somehow we've created this idea that I can be a Christian without actually trying to live like Jesus. And Jesus says, no, come after me, follow me, live my life, imitate me, apprentice under me. Jesus was a rabbi. When he invited his disciples to follow him, he was inviting them to learn his way of living, a whole new life, a whole new purpose. In, in, the, in the Mishnah and some of the rabbinic writings, there's a saying, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And those were dusty days, right, when, you, when they just walked around everywhere, sandals, and the roads weren't paved, and so they'd kick up dust. And it was like this picture, it's like, may you be so close to your rabbi that you're covered in his dust because you're right behind him. It's a picture of what it means to apprentice or to learn from Jesus. Friends, you and I, I don't have this in me to do life that way, but Jesus does. He says, walk closely with me and let who I am begin to cover your whole life, begin to affect every way you think and every way you walk. This is what it means to have a purpose in life in Jesus, is to become like the one you follow, to image him to the rest of the world. And you know the beautiful thing is he invited his disciples to do it long before they knew what they were saying yes to. He didn't look at them and say, oh, those guys really have their lives together. In fact, we can read most of the Gospels and figure it out. They didn't. That's not why he chose them. Why did he choose them? You know what I've come up with? It's my best answer. They were the ones who said yes. I don't know who else he asked and they said no. These ones said, okay, and they had no idea what they were getting into. And yet years later, they look back, right? Said, when? Wouldn't change a thing. And over time, bit by bit, day by day, they were covered in the dust of their rabbi. They became like Jesus to the rest of the world. This is the hope that if they could become like that and Jesus says to you, follow me, this is what it means. So here's what I want to do just to end this. Because in this passage, Jesus says, let your light shine before men, right? It's this picture that when we actually begin to live like this, we shine, we radiate, we show something new to a world that, quite frankly, is disappointed with their round and around life. It's why they have to keep going round and around again, because no amount of fame is enough, no amount of wealth is enough, no amount of power is enough, no amount of beauty is enough. Everybody knows it's an empty pursuit, but nobody knows a different way. And Jesus says, live like this and shine like stars, shine like a light, show people a different way to live. And so here's what we're going to do. In my church, uh, sometimes when we get to the end of the service, um, I, you know, I'm always asking God, God, what do you want us to do in response to this? Like, how do we take a step of faith? Because that's what it means to be the church, is to faithfully trust Jesus and take steps of obedience. And so what we do sometimes, and I don't know if this is going to work here, but I'm okay, I'm just going to be out there on a limb here. We auction off steps of faith. 
Okay, because sometimes I, I spent more time sitting there than I, than I have up here. I was working in business and marketing, so I spent more time in, in the pew than I did um, at, the, at the pulpit. And so I know what it's like. You're sitting there and you're sort of going, God, are you speaking to me? I know I need to just do something. I need to commit to something because when I walk out of that door, sometimes it just goes. And so I want to give you a chance just to say, it's a faith step. I'm going to take that. So we're going to do an auction. Now at an auction, only one person, there's only one person who wins. In the church, you can, many people can take Okay, so there's lots of winners here. I'm just going to go through one by one some of these steps of faith. And if you say, yeah, I want to do that, I will commit to do that, I want to actually take a step of faith, just put up your hand. Just say, yeah, I'll take that. And we'll go through them. And whatever it is, maybe there's just one thing that this morning the Holy Spirit is saying to you, do this, follow me, walk with me in this. I just know the power that comes into our lives when we're willing to trust Jesus and take a step of faith. You believe it? So here we go. Some of you here need to say, I need to take a step to recognize my need and ask for help. And maybe that means you've been struggling with something that you haven't let anybody else in on, or you've been struggling with something that nobody in your church family knows about, or you're going through a financial crisis, or you're going through something, whether it's in your marriage or in your life or your health, or you're, you're struggling with anxiety. A lot of times I'm finding people, it takes them forever to just say, I've been struggling with anxiety because they feel like it says something so terrible about them. Instead, that's the day when light begins to come into your life and you say, I need help. How many of you here are saying, I, I, need to, I actually need to ask for help? That's my faith step. All right. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Some of you need to take a step to mourn with someone. There's someone in your life who's been suffering and you're just tired of their suffering. <laughs> and Jesus is actually saying, I want you to mourn with them. I want you to find the blessing in life that comes from coming alongside someone who's wrecked. And so maybe there's a relationship in your life, maybe it's a person, maybe it's a neighbor, and you know stuff's going on, but you've just kind of tried to dance around and avoid it and say, I'll pray for you. And Jesus is saying, no, I actually want you to go closer. Who needs to take that step? Praise God, praise God. Just write it down if that's your faith step, just that one thing. For some of you, there's a step of obedience that you know you need to take, but you've been resisting it because it's gonna hurt you. It's gonna cost you financially, might cost you reputation. You're afraid of what the other person's going to say. You're afraid of what your spouse will think. You're afraid about what a friend or a family member or a parent will say. And you just know, you know you, that you know that you know, I got to do this. Who needs that? Step of obedience. Amen. All right. Some of you, you got to power down. You've been in a relationship where you've been butting heads. Maybe it's with a boss, maybe it's with a peer, maybe it's with a parent, maybe it's with a spouse, maybe it's with a neighbor, and inside of you, you're like, I can't let this go. I have to fight for my rights. If I don't say something, they're gonna, I, I'm gonna lose here. It's a power game, and you're feeling like they're, they're powering up, and if I don't do that, I'm gonna lose. I'm gonna end up with a short stick, and Jesus is saying to you, you know what? Can you just stop that fight and start to use whatever power you do have to serve the other person? How oh, you need to power down? Praise God. Remember that, friends. Just write it down. Say, that's going to take. Say, Jesus, what, what does this look like? Some of you, it's about showing mercy and forgiveness. Someone has wronged you recently, or maybe it, it happened a long time ago. Maybe it's a family hurt that you've just kind of taken on because you know your parents are upset or your uncle or aunts are upset, and you just don't see that part of the family anymore. And maybe to begin with, just saying, you know what, I just want to start praying for them instead of thinking about this. I need to take a step to show mercy. How many of you need to mend a relationship? Show mercy. Praise God. Do it. Do it. God will flood your life with light if you trust him. 
the pure in heart. Some of you just need to make something right. Maybe it's not a relationship, but it's something you've done that you've never confessed. You never actually told somebody and said, you know what, I, I, I wronged you or I wronged someone else. I need to make this right. And you just want the purity of God to fill your heart again. You don't want to carry this thing anymore. How many of you need that? You need to make something right. Amen. And finally, maybe, or not finally, some of you, you know it's actually not about what someone's done to you, but there's a relationship around that you've just been avoiding, but you know they're fighting, and you're meant to make peace. You just need to move towards it instead of pretend it's not there. Who needs to do that? Amen. May God give you courage to do that. And finally, there's people in your life that you've actually never talked to them about the Jesus you know and love. You say, you know what, I, I don't even know how to say this, but I love them too much not to say anything anymore. I just got to tell them about the Jesus that is changing my life. Who needs to take that step? Amen. Jesus, this is the harder way to live. We know it but it's the beautiful life. You don't invite us to follow you because you need anything from us, but you want the world for us. And so I pray for each person here that has taken a step of faith, whether they put their hand up or not, but they just know. Bless them with courage and power and strength and an experience of your light just flooding their soul. That bit by bit, this step of faith would make us more like you. As if we were more like you, the world would change. We thank you that you have not just saved us, but you've given us a purpose to live for. And that's why it's in your name that we sing and we pray. Amen. Amen.